This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Patrick Maguire, still in for Matt Chorley on his holidays in sunny Dorset. But don't worry, we've got a packed episode for you today. In our big thing at 11 o'clock, we headed up to Scotland to answer the question, is Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak a better bet to save the union? We spoke to the polling legend, Professor Sir John Curtis, plus quite a few Scottish Tory MPs and MSPs on how they think the leadership race is going. That's coming up in just a moment. But before that, we heard from our columnist panel on their favourite middle brows. It's a Thursday, so it's James Marriott. Indian Night's not here. Patrick Key was in her place. On Times Radio. Yes, yes, it's a Thursday. No Indian Night this week, sadly. We've got James Marriott here as always. Good morning, James. Good morning. And in India's place, someone even more glamorous, Times Diary Editor Patrick Kidd. Uh, even more bearded, anyway. <laughs> uh, well, even look, more bearded than you. I know. Well, hang on. You know, as we used to sit with each other in the Times Parliamentary Office, I looked at you with, with admiration. Well, you, you were always my model, Patrick. And then now there are two bearded Patricks on the top. Well, and then now, with my children, it's much more white. Someone in the pub yesterday described me as looking like a retired badger. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's very funny. A very, a very, look, a very snappily dressed retired badger, I have to say, Patrick. Now, let's get cracking. I wondered what you both made of uh, Labour's endless ability to turn a bad week for the Conservative Party into an even worse week for itself. James, have you been following this remarkable row between Keir Starmer, Sam Tarry, and whether the Labour Party should be the party of organised labour? Yeah, I, I have. I sometimes find it slightly difficult to keep up with what the kind of correct interpretation on these events is. Is it Keir Starmer is displaying his authority and shutting down people who disagree with him, or is it, um, why is everyone disobeying Keir Starmer? Why does he have to do this in the first place? Which seems to be the interpretation that is the one that is the correct one. And what do, what, what do you think when you, when you look at him? I don't know. I think it just has... The Labour Party does seem to have this problem where they're kind of having trouble kind of escaping this sort of reputation for internal backstabbing and everyone disobeying each other and no one managing to stick to the script a bit. In a way that, the, I mean, the Conservative Party, I suppose, used to have the reputation of being uh, right and on message, but, I mean, everyone's just kind of collapsing into civil war at the moment. Well, exactly. And the problem with the Labour Party, uh, Patrick Kidd, has always been... It's been this uneasy coalition between sort of Hampstead liberals, between, uh, you know, the trade union movement, which is, uh, you know, communist in part and, uh, you know, working class organisers. Uh, it's sort of like five political parties bolted together in a very, very unhappy 
polygamous marriage, isn't it? It is an unhappy coalition, but they're never going to achieve what they want for the country if they're not in government. Mm. And that's the thing that Keir Starmer needs to keep on saying to them. Uh, that doesn't mean that you become just a sort of a, a slightly nicer version of the Tory party. But I think when John McDonnell, uh, the, the Shadow Chancellor, was talking about general strike and everyone else and stuff like that, I think... Out brothers out, yeah. Keir Starmer is quite right to say, no, we're on the side of the, the customer here, not on, on the side of the people. That doesn't mean you're not on the same side as the workers, of course. And, you know, there are a lot of people... We talk about the train drivers being on 60,000, but, of course, there are the, 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 the train cleaners and, and there are the, the ticket guards, but who are much, much less... And you know, everyone deserves a pay rise, especially with all the talk of of, of um, how cost of living price rises. But you know, you can be on the side of the workers without saying everyone out on the streets and, and gather around the brazier. And you know, hardworking diary editors who need to get in from Blackheath in the morning, not being able to get yeah. the train in. Well, I mean, I've not been told what pay rise I'm getting this year. I'm, I don't think there's been any news UK announcement of that. Normally, there would be by now, but we'll we'll get on with it. Uh, I won't pull my pull my labour just for the sake of it. Well, look, uh, you know, we'll we'll uh, we'll you know. Did, Decline to make you father of the chapel. and uh, I would love to walk across a picket line, though. Would you? Oh, I, I wish I worked for the Times in the Wapping days. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you would have been there flicking the Vs at the uh, the unions? Of course. Good man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what do you, what do you, what do you, um, you know, you were, you watched Keir Starmer for a long time in your uh, old role as Times parliamentary sketch writer. How did you rate him as a Commons performer? Because, you know, I think it's quite a popular conception of Keir Starmer that he's just a bit wet. And he's a bit wet and, and dull. Yeah. He is not someone that naturally inspires troops to rally behind him. Um, but, you know, you could argue that after the Boris Johnson years, perhaps a little dull and steady as it goes is what's needed. And the thing is that he hasn't really come up with Labour policies for dealing with the cost of living crisis or, or for dealing with the complaints that the union... It's one thing to say you can't go and stand on a picket line, Sam Terry. But if they were in government, what would they be doing to make life better for these people. And that's, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because something I hear a lot from people around Keir Starmer is, oh, you don't understand, you don't understand, he's, he, he might be a bit rubbish on telly and he might be weak, but he's really, really ruthless, really. And this is proof that he's really ruthless. But, you know, from what we've been just discussing, James, it's ha- quite hard to look ruthless if, you know, we've just had Rachel Maskell, another Labour MP on the air, saying something completely different to, to Keir Starmer. As long as people can come on the airwaves as... Labour MPs and say things that are completely divergent from what Keir Starmer wants wants them to be saying. I think a lot of people at home will be listening pretty confused, won't they? Yeah, exactly. I thought Patrick's point was really good. In in politics, your actions will always be interpreted through the medium of your public persona. And if Keir Starmer stood up in the House of Commons and seemed authoritative and like he was, you know, really kind of scoring points and slapping people down there, I think we might interpret what's happening now as more a sign of his ruthlessness than as a sign of the kind of floppiness of the Labour Party. And I think you're just kind of doomed to have everything you do filter through the public perception of you, which is formed on TV. And that adds a kind of bit of a shade onto how people interpret sort of internal crises like these. Let's move on to another leader, or rather a leader in waiting, Liz Truss. Ian Martin's got a really interesting column this morning in The Times, because again, it's very fashionable to write off Liz Truss as, in the words of Dominic Cummings, a bit crackers, you know, to concentrate on her, on her, you know, as she herself admits, not particularly slick presentation. Patrick, as you'll be well familiar with, slightly wooden delivery. Uh, I often think she sounds a bit like someone's playing a banana sing- a banana-rama single at 30, <laughs> 33 RPM. That's yes. What, that's a reference for the kids out there. That's, well, this is, yeah, this is the middle brow thing that James Marriott will talk about later. I, I often think she sounds like, Ed Miliband trying to do an impression of Thatcher. <laughs> there, there's something about she's got a slightly nasal voice. Mm. 
Uh, she's an interesting character. But, we're, but you know, we're laughing about Liz Truss this morning, as many Tory MPs have, as, as the Labour Party very complacently say, oh, we're going to batter in her election. But Ian Martin makes quite an interesting counterintuitive case in the, this morning's Times. She's defied expectations again and again and again. She's in the final two. She's leading in the polls. She's almost certainly going to be our next Prime Minister. What do you make of that? Is that just because people like someone who's going to tickle their tummy and say what they like, rather than actually wanting a mm. competition? I'm, I'm not sure Sunak's the most inspiring. But she doesn't do more than speak in sound bites. Um, watching the debate on, oh gosh, was this Monday? And uh, the one in Stoke. And so at one stage she used the phrase, we need to turbocharge the toffee. Because she was referring to the toffee. And we turbocharge the toffee and we need deeper freeports. Deeper? Yep. What, for bigger ships, I assume? Yeah, I guess so. Well, is that not the kind of... People like politicians with a bold vision, don't yeah. they? And that's the thing. She, she looks like she's got the ideas because she says it with such certainty. Well, you know, maybe. rather that than someone prevaricating like Keir Starmer, maybe? Yeah, well, perhaps, you know, in this world, there's no place for grey. You have to be black or white. You have to be one way or the other. You can't just say it's a bit complicated. No place for Keir Starmer's Fifty Shades of Grey. James, watching Liz Truss from, not from sort of our vantage point as political obsessives, but as a, you know, as an informed follower of uh, the news, what, what have you made of her? Because Ian Martin's column, I think, is quite convincing. I came away from it thinking, you know what? It's always good to get a good blast of uh, blast against Westminster group thing. Yeah, and, and you can't argue with you can't argue with the numbers in this case, can you? Yeah, and it's, it's very interesting watching the debate on Sunday. I was really struck. I think she's improved a lot as a performer since the early debates. And I mean, I, she's, I do not think she's charismatic by any means. But I suddenly kind of thought against against Rishi Sunak. I can kind of see that if you're watching that, and Rishi Sunak is desperately trying to explain how the economy works in sort of you know thirty second interjections, and she's just able to kind of come in and say quite sort of you know robust things. I can see that even if that would not convince someone who is maybe up on the economy, I can sort of see why as a political strategy that might that might have its strengths. I mean yeah, I guess I guess I watched that debate and I was like, okay, I sort of see where people are coming from a bit more. And it was interesting, I think there was a there was a poll after that debate of the general public where I think Richie Sunak had only just he was ahead been by one, point, one ahead by one point. Which which as you say kind of is a real um you know contradiction to the idea that He's just, you know, unless you're a kind of nutty Tory member, he's miles the most sensible choice. Um, and that actually says that maybe people aren't thinking that way. And actually, there's not as much in it as, you know, people might have persuaded themselves. Because you've got to admit, uh, Patrick, that surely as someone who's been watching these people for as long as you have, she has markedly improved as a speaker since the days of we import two-thirds of our cheese, that is a <laughs> disgrace. Well, I mean, that is charismatic in its own way. It's memorable. It is. Seven years on, we're still talking about... Um, it's kind of anti-charisma, sort of like the weird dark matter opposite of charisma, I thought, that speech. But it's, but it's up there, actually, yeah. you're right, it's up there with the most iconic orations in British political history now, <laughs> you know, a new dawn has broken, has it not? Uh, we will fight them on the beaches and we import two-thirds of our cheese. <laughs> Put that on a CD and sell it. Yeah, I... I suppose we're just in an age of sound bites and short clips on social media and stuff like that. And no one wants someone to say, well, this is complicated. Let me talk you through how we're going to solve it because there'll be, let's cut to the break and we'll deal with that later. Well, speaking of cutting to the break and ages of soundbite, James loved your column today, particularly as a self-identified middle brow reader and consumer of culture. Why do you think this, uh, you know, this defiantly suburban you know, we're both suburban boys. Actually, we're all suburban boys, aren't we? Yes, yeah. yeah. I'm SE9. You know, SE9. Uh, Whitley Bay, Southport. Colchester. Yeah, Colchester originally. But, you know, what, what's happened to middle brow culture? What's happening to it? Well, my theory was that kind of middle brow culture, um, the sort of stuff 
the, the stuff that's not super clever and the stuff that's not total trash. I guess you'd think of the kind of go-to things I thought of were films like Forrest Gump, um, these films that used to win Oscars in the 90s. And this is, I think I was saying this is a kind of part of culture that has hugely declined and has kind of been pushed by the rise of kind of nonsense and trash coming up from social media. And then at the other ha- and the other side are sort of retreating um, elitism at the top of culture. So the Oscars are now much more likely to go to films with much smaller, more refined audiences. You know, Nomadland, which won a couple of years ago, is never going to have the huge appeal of Titanic or Forrest Gump or Schindler's List or those big sort of uniting middle of the road but but brilliant films that once kind of brought everyone together and i think that phenomenon kind of goes through it's talking about how it goes through literature and also it goes through media and this is a kind of big divide in our society between high and low and this huge thing that used to exist which was great art and films in the middle that is could kind unite of everybody that could unite everyone and was like accessible but also smart I think that's kind of that's kind of disappearing, which I think is a very sad thing. So, and and you almost think you know, because there was a great feature in Times Two the other day um, about how you're either watching Love Island or you're watching the Tory leadership debate. Exactly. Do you think yeah. that is the division, the cleavage in our society now? Yes, I think so. I think I mean you can kind of cut it all kinds of ways, but that's definitely that's definitely one of them. Patrick, your favourite middle brow art. Well, I'm just going to say, I'm not sure the Tory leadership contest is highbrow, but it's, it's <laughs> a different true. brow. Well, Love Island is the highbrow but, and uh, Tory leadership is the lowbrow. One thing that, that one. came to mind re- reading your column, which, which you hadn't mentioned, was how Monty Python, now I know that's 50 years old, but was very much the epitome of middle brow, because yes, they were Oxbridge kids, but it was hugely popular across the country, with things like the Summarised Proust competition. Now, you can't see a, a, someone going to a, a BBC commissioning editor now and saying, we're going to write a sketch about an impenetrable French author and how it, uh, you can't possibly summarise it in 30 seconds because they would assume that people don't have the tools. They, they don't have, they've never heard of him. Um, and, and I think that's a worry that sort of the general mass of general knowledge are, are vocab. Yeah, but exactly. If you, if you go on Desert Island Discs, you're given Shakespeare and, 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 and the Bible. But it was sort of assumed that everyone knew Shakespeare and the Bible anyway. I, so, I sometimes wonder when they're going to abolish those two... Uh... Those two, especially the Shakespeare, because, you know, as you say, like, fewer and fewer people read and know their Shakespeare nowadays, don't they? But in the past, it, the, it was widely assumed, and you could sort of make these... written entirely in cliches. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, just before I let you go, Patrick, in the diary today, um, you've got news of a new social media account for Parliament, which actually, given what the two uh, candidates from number 10 are saying about China today, will probably be uh, banned in short order in September. But... Uh, what are they? Uh, what are they doing on TikTok? Well, you said TikTok, the Chinese-owned video sharing app, which Liz Truss certainly has said she would abolish if yeah, she yeah. came in. Parliament has now brought in its UK Parliament TikTok app. The only video that was on it yesterday was uh, one of um, how to take the perfect selfie in front of Big Ben, which I think might fit into the lowbrow rather than the middlebrow. <laughs> Um, but anyway, I just made a joke that it's quite apt for something called TikTok to be taking a, a picture of Big Ben. And then my colleague Jack said, well, you know, we'll get pedants pointing out if you say that, that actually Big Ben is ding dong, not TikTok. <laughs> of course, of course. And that is middle, not the knowing that the Big Ben is the bell, the bell is middle brow. Basically, middle brow is being good at pub quizzes. Well, that was James Murray and Patrick Kidd. You can read them in The Times by getting yourself a subscription. Just go to The Times website. Next up, though, how can the next Tory leader lead the party's revival in Scotland? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to Patrick McGuire on the Times Redbox Politics Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. It's a question that could not just determine the future of the Conservative Party, but the future of the UK full stop. Can Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak arrest Tory decline in Scotland and with it keep the UK together? It's a question both of them have been pitching hard to Tory members as the best candidate to answer. Now, I've got an expert panel today to help me chew over this hardy perennial for the Tories. Remember, in 1997, they were wiped out. They recovered in 2017 to 13 MPs, but have since uh, begun to slide again. Kieran Andrews, political editor of The Times up in Scotland, knows more about this than anyone, and he joins me on the line now. Morning, Kieran. Hey, Patrick. Now, it looked for a short time, and it's really important in politics not to ever ride off a party, even a party that were once, you know, the old joke went that the Tories had fewer MPs than there were pandas in Scotland. And now that's true of the Labour Party. And 15 years ago, nobody would have assumed that was the case. So we shouldn't write off either leadership candidate as being unable or unequipped to revive the Tories in Scotland. But what do you reckon, looking at them both and looking at Boris Johnson's, you know, despite everything, subterranean political and personal popularity in Scotland, who do you think is best placed to succeed him? Well, it's fair to say that from speaking to various members of the Scottish Conservatives, there aren't many who are unhappy to see the back of Boris Johnson. You know, most of the MSPs, the MPs you speak to, reckon that Rishi Sunak um, or Liz Truss, you know, that, that both would struggle to be any worse for the party, more of a drag on the party in Scotland than the outgoing Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, um, a bit like his, a bit like his campaign um, amongst the MPs, his leadership campaign started off really strongly in Scotland. He he gathered quite a lot of the momentum and support from Scottish MPs, you know, the likes of Andrew Bowie and then John Lamont. Once Penny Mordaunt dropped out, a number of MSPs, uh, and then the likes of Ruth Davidson all coming on board to support Rishi Sunak. But what we've seen in the last few days. It's actually a slow swelling of support for Liz Truss. She's still, I think, probably some way behind Rishi Sunak in terms of support amongst the politicians, but perhaps a growing realisation that the Scottish Tories are going to have to work with whoever becomes Prime Minister. And that means if it's Liz Truss, you know, there's a lot of people who, senior in the party, don't want to have a situation like it was with Boris Johnson, where it's very, very obvious from the get-go 
Scottish and UK party leaderships aren't getting on. So, yeah, the, the, the MSPs, the MPs up here have been pretty careful not to write off either candidate uh, for fear that doing so will just uh, undermine the union. And as long as the Scottish Conservative Party is running as the Scottish Conservative Party, there, as we both know, there are intermittent discussions over splitting the two and having a centre-right party in Scotland, a bit like in, in Germany, where you have a separate uh, Christian Democratic Party in Bavaria. That's one for the European politics nerds. But, and, they, and they govern together at a national level, but they're different parties. Short of a solution like that, as you say, whoever is the next leader of the Conservative Party is going to have to get on with the next leader of the Conservative Party in Scotland, not like Douglas Ross, who had that sort of hokey-cokey approach to his conference in Boris Johnson. You know, no sooner had he declared he didn't have it than he'd taken his letter out again and then putting it back in again. Um, but given, given that sort of context, Kieran, and what you're saying about Liz Truss uh, slowly gaining support, why do you think it is that Rishi Sunak is so far ahead among... Scottish Tories? Is it simply the sort of gravitational pull of the polling? They look at the, the numbers which are better in Scotland for Rishi Sunak than, than Liz Truss and think, well, hang on, this guy is my only, my only hope of keeping my seat and perhaps gaining a couple of more. Well, first of all, on the, the CSU um, reference, there was interesting, there was a group of Scottish Tories during the first week of uh, recess headed over to Bavaria to learn a bit more about the workings of that. So you never know; there might be um, might be a little bit um, more to come on on the relationship between the two parties down the line. In terms of Rishi Sunak, I think you know we, we've got somebody who's eminently more qualified to talk about polling than me coming up. But I, I think r- more than that, it was a case of Rishi Sunak reflected a kind of steady competence or an idea of steady competence and. It was kind of slightly more liberal conservative than uh, Liz Truss has certainly reinvented herself as post Brexit referendum, and that you know Rishi Sunak just appealed as that you know almost more in keeping with the general um, feeling, particularly amongst the the Tory group at Holyrood in terms of where they stand on on social issues, but also you know let's not forget that Rishi Sunak and the Treasury were involved uh, quite heavily in the levelling up projects that were mm. kind of pushed by Michael Gove, Alistair Jack, the Scottish Secretary, and the Treasury to, to kind of circumvent Holland and put money directly into communities, which is something that across the Scottish Conservatives has been seen as a positive for the UK government to show that it can have you know, a, a, a positive impact on Scotland rather than just kind of playing the the old um, Project Fear tunes that have often been associated with the campaign for the, the union. And indeed, during the pandemic, because, you know, your, your, your job's existence is testament to that. Scotland has a different political culture. You hear much more from Holyrood ministers than you necessarily do uh, ministers in Westminster who often only act for England or England and Wales. And Rishi Sunak was very visible during the pandemic across the UK, wasn't he? Kieran, we're going to speak to John Curtis in just a second. But before then, in one word, yes, no, or Rishi or Liz, who would you say is the better candidate, the candidate who's best place, one, to put the Tory party back together between Westminster and Holyrood, and two, to start leading, if it's possible, that uh, that electoral recovery? I think I'll probably leave it to the politicians ah, to see who's better Kieran, to put it back Kieran. together. Um, but Rishi Sunak is certainly, at the moment, 
probably an easier sell for the Scottish Tories in Scotland, but you know that may change very, very quickly and possibly already is. Hedging your bets as ever, Kieran. You're we're all as bad as each other as political journalists, aren't we? Kieran Andrews, <laughs> political editor of the Times Scotland Edition. Thanks very much for joining us. Now let's speak to a man who knows the numbers at play here better than anyone else. Sir John Curtis, professor of politics at the University of Strathclyde, and the guru of political polling, joins me on the line now. Good morning, John. Good morning to you, Patrick. Now, how bad is the polling situation for the Conservatives in Scotland? Because underpinning this entire discussion is an assumption that things are bad, and that's because of Boris Johnson. Yeah, they're not as good as they were, um, but equally they're not as bad as they sometimes have been. So the principal problem facing the Conservatives is that they have fallen into third place in Scotland. And one of their significant achievements between 2016 until the local elections area this year is that they did emerge for the first time since the advent of devolution as the stronger, uh, the strongest of the unionist parties outpointing the Labour Party. Um, But really from about Christmas of last year, i.e. when the Conservative Party across the UK as a whole began to lose support in the wake of uh, Johnson's involvement in what we came to know as Partygate, uh, the party slipped back to around 20%, even less in the polls, falling behind Labour. That was reflected in the local elections. And that basically is still the position because the Conservative Party is still, in, over the last few weeks or so, has been between 8 and 10 points behind the British polls and therefore there's, uh, behind Labour in the, in the British polls. And there's no reason, therefore, to believe that the party has recovered north of the border. That said, uh, you know the twenty uh, the local election performance uh, this year was still better than the one that the Conservatives put in ten years ago. So not all of the long term recovery in the party's position um, in the second decade of the twenty first century has been lost. So they're not starting from square one. I think that's also obvious from the twenty nineteen result. You know, it's often assumed that Boris Johnson is electoral kryptonite for the Tories in Scotland, but he did still manage to win six or seven seats, didn't he? But yeah. what does the what does the polling suggest about the two candidates? Who do you think is better placed from this not ideal, but as you say, not terrible starting position to to kick on, if that's indeed possible? Well, the answer to it in terms of direct evidence about the views of voters in Scotland is A, that evidence is extremely limited, and B, doesn't give you very much in the way of a uh, clear conclusion. Mm. Um, You have to bear in mind that there actually haven't been any opinion polls conducted specifically of Scotland since the downfall of Boris Johnson on the 6th and 7th July. The last one was conducted just before that. Um, So all we can do is try to look at what the Scottish respondents to British polls have said, but you have to bear in mind that even though I'm now going to pick out those polls with relatively large sample sizes, you're still only looking at about Mm. 200 people in Scotland. Anyway, for what it is worth, opinion, most recent poll in the Observer last Sunday, in Scotland asking people, you know, whether uh, uh, Mr Sunak or Ms Truss will make a good or a bad Prime Minister, while Mr Sunak... 35% 35% thought he'd be good, 46% bad, Liz Truss, 29% good, 41% bad. In other words, no net advantage to either candidate. A couple of other pollsters, Conrad and Redfield and Wilton, have asked people 
uh, to choose between Sunak, Stroke Trust and Starmer. Now, arguably, that's the wrong choice in Scotland because, mm. of course, the Conservatives' principal opponents um, are uh, is Nicola Sturgeon. But anyway, that's what we've got out of the British polls. And again, the message from those is that basically, well, A, people in Scotland much prefer uh, 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 Sakir Starmer to either Mr Sunak or Ms Trust, but basically the two are equally far behind. So it is not obvious from this very, very limited direct evidence that either Mr Sunak or Ms Trust have an advantage, and that in a sense fits the wider British party. It's not clear that either of them has a decisive advantage uh, with the public. All that one could possibly say is that there is some evidence that the further you get away from the Conservative Party, um, the more popular Mr Sunak becomes and the less popular his trust becomes. And given that Scotland is, shall we say, not the most conservative time part of the United Kingdom, maybe you might want to feel that Mr Sunak might have somewhat greater ability to reach out beyond the current core Conservative vote. But that is as much an interpretation on my part as is anything I can support directly with evidence. And just in a sentence or two, if you can, Sir John Curtis, to what extent can any Conservative leader hope to take on the SNP, which is a government with a very chequered record? I think even the SNP themselves would admit that, and their opponents constantly despair that they can't land a glove on Nicola Sturgeon despite her patchy domestic record. To what extent will either of them be constrained by the constitutional element to the electoral question in Scotland? Yeah, look, the crucial thing you need to understand about politics in Scotland is that it is now utterly driven by the constitutional question. Indeed, I would argue that the constitutional question now divides voters in Scotland in terms of how they vote to an even greater extent than the constitutional issue does in Northern Ireland. The reason why the SNP's somewhat patchy record domestically doesn't matter is because if you are in favour of independence, you are now voting for the SNP. And if you are opposed to independence, you are not voting for the SNP. That's mm. a dominant question. And the question that faces the next prime minister is how, if at all, you are going to engage on the constitutional question. So far, the tactics have tended to be simply argue that voters had the vote um, eight years ago. They shouldn't have another one and focusing on the question of process. The trouble is that doesn't dissuade anybody of the merits of case for independence. And the really interesting question is whether or not the Conservative Party and indeed the Labour Party are going not to grant a referendum, no, that obviously isn't going to happen, but whether they're going to get involved in the debate on the merits of being inside the Union versus uh, being an independent country, that certainly Nicola Sturgeon is now instigating because in the end, if you want to make Scotland's position in the Union safe, what above all you need to do is to reduce the level of support for independence, which at the moment is not far short of 50%. Uh, but so far, unionists have been reluctant to get involved mm. in the debate because they don't want to give it legitimacy. But I'm not sure that in the long run that is the best tactic from their point of view. Professor John Curtis from Strathclyde University, the man who knows more about polling in Scotland and the rest of the UK than anybody else. 
Thanks very much for joining us on Times Radio. That is a remarkable thing to hear, the constitutional question, now dividing voters in Scotland to a greater extent than it does divide voters in Northern Ireland. But coming up, we'll hear from a couple of Scottish MSPs and MPs on what they think of all of that and who they're backing. They'll make the case for Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss. And we'll hear from the chairman of the party in Scotland too. Joining me now to discuss that is Craig Hoy, the Conservative and Unionist MSP for South Scotland, but also chairman of the Tory party in Scotland. He joins me now. Morning, Craig. Good morning, Patrick. Um, how are you feeling about the leadership race so far? Are you staying neutral as the chairman in uh, across the UK is? Yes, I'm obviously uh, uh, remaining uh, neutral on this. I think this is a good opportunity, however, for the party in Scotland to uh, look forward. I think it's also an opportunity for us to reflect on the people's priorities. And I'm pleased that both candidates, for example, both candidates have, have had uh, discussions with the MSP uh, group uh, here in Scotland the last four or five days. And they, they've both set out uh, their clear view that um, here in Scotland we should be focusing on the people's priorities and trying to move on from this constitutional obsession that the SNP have forced Scotland into. And I think this is the opportunity for us to reset that and for a new Prime Minister to come forward and say, why don't we now finally take the constitutional division uh, off the table here in Scotland and have two governments, our two governments, uh, working to try and uh, focus on those big priorities. And it's quite clear at this point in time, the biggest single priority is the uh, global cost of living crisis. And I think that's what uh, we would like the uh, incoming Prime Minister to be focused on. And that's also what we'd like to see the First Minister uh, be focused on. And what do you think Tory members are prioritising in this race? Obviously, of course, the Tories in Scotland don't want to focus relentlessly on the constitutional question. The problem is Nicola Sturgeon does so. Clearly, you'll want someone who is stout and unstinting in their defence of the union. But what else do members want to hear when they see the leadership candidates at the hustings in Perth? I think, obviously, uh, as uh, John Curtis did, did allude to there, the constitutional question here in Scotland is centre stage. But it's not centre stage uh, at our volition or our behest. It's because Nicola Sturgeon keeps pushing uh, this division because it actually distracts uh, attention from her failures in relation to schools, hospitals, roads, railways and, and ferries. So I think what members here in Scotland will be looking for from uh, a new Prime Minister is obviously a clear commitment uh, to uh, the union. And that's not just done in words, that's done in deeds. And I think it will be important that the levelling up agenda uh, uh, continues, that we get these two uh, free ports that the UK government is committed to here in Scotland, and that we have a government that is willing uh, to work with the Scottish government uh, to improve quality of life here in Scotland, to invest directly in, in communities here in Scotland, and to tackle uh, the, uh, the economy and the global cost of living crisis. But it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, after uh, uh, September. Is the First Minister willing to play ball? Is she willing to engage uh, positively and constructively with uh, a new Prime Minister? Or will she just simply try and sow more grievance because it plays to her agenda of trying to push for another independence referendum next year? It's quite clear that both leadership contenders have said now is not the, the time for another independence referendum. And I think that will be warmly welcomed, not just by Conservative members and supporters, but by unionists here in Scotland as well. And that's another thing in the intro of the next Prime Minister, the prospect of a constitutional standoff with Nicola Sturgeon. Craig Hoy, Chairman of the Conservative Party in Scotland, thank you very much for joining us. Now, Craig Hoy is staying neutral, but before the show, I spoke to Rachel Hamilton, MSP for the Border Regions. I asked her, is this a time for a clean start between the Scottish Tories and the next leader? And does Liz Truss have what it takes to put the union back together? 
No, I think you're absolutely right. And uh, you know, as much as I uh, admired Boris Johnson, he didn't have great ratings in Scotland. And we need to make sure that, you know, we are the next leader is delivering for the union and the economy as a whole. And I do think that both candidates in Rishi and Liz will give us an opportunity to do that and uh, reset the relationship, I, I would hope, between the Scottish government, between Nicola Sturgeon and the UK government. Um, you know, we, we want to demonstrate um, that we have shared prosperity across the United Kingdom um, and demonstrate that uh, the next leader uh, will stand up for Scotland um, and will defend the union. And I think that's really important. So whoever um, is successful, and of course, we'll see uh, the shape of that over the next few weeks. We've got a hustings in Perth on the uh, 16th of August. And I think members will be very keen uh, to listen to what both candidates have to say, particularly about the union, because, of course, it's very important in Scotland. And as we're facing this uh, cost of living crisis, inflationary pressures, global security, um, household budgets are being squeezed. I've just been on a surgery tour across the borders over the last few days. I'm going out today again. I know people are talking about um, the, the price of oil. They're talking about um, NHS waiting times. Um, and they're not talking about the things that Nicola Sturgeon and the Nationalists are talking about. So whoever is uh, successful is going to have to ensure um, that Scotland and the Union are at their top of priorities and all the things that matter to people at the moment that are not about an independence referendum are um, at the fore. Liz Truss is positioning herself, herself or perhaps more fairly has been positioned as the, the heiress to Mrs Thatcher. Given how controversial and contested Mrs Thatcher's legacy is in Scotland, would you say that's going to go down particularly well? Well, I, I, I'm not quite uh, convinced that uh, Liz Truss is the sort of epitome of Margaret Thatcher. I mean, she has been pursuing uh, policies that are different to Margaret Thatcher. And so therefore, you know, her, her um, economic policy is quite different to Margaret Thatcher. And I think that um, Scots will be looking at um, the policies uh, rather than um, how, how she is, how she looks and how she dresses. Um, I think she'll be, um, I think it'll be really integral, actually. Um, I, mean, I have to say I am veering towards Liz Truss. You might um, have picked that up, but I, I'm, I'm really keen that um, she drives investment into Scotland. Both candidates have, um, by the way, committed to that. So, you know, the, the legacy of the levelling up fund um, through the community renewal uh, funds have been really successful in Scotland because they're putting money directly into communities. And that's what communities are looking for. Um, so, Anything that um, the candidates are talking about in terms of their policies um, to put more money in and um, support um, families is really, really important. I, I don't think how people look, dress and speak is as, as important as it is at the moment with the you know cost of living crisis that we're facing. So Liz Truss at the moment has the edge for you then? support public services. Well, that was the case for Liz Trust. Let's now hear the case for Rishi Sunak in Scotland from Andrew Bowie, the Scottish Conservative and Unionist MP for West Aberdeenshire and Kincardine. Morning, Andrew. Hey, Patrick. Uh, you have supported Rishi Sunak since the very start. I remember I saw you uh, beaming ear to ear at his leadership launch. <laughs> yeah. Um, in, in short, what is the case for Rishi Sunak as the man to save the Tories in Scotland, keep your seat and save the union? 
Well, look, I, firstly, I, I disagree with the premise that we need saves. You know, we're doing better now than we have at any point uh, since 1997, with the exception of that brief uh, blip that we had in uh, 2017. Um, so I don't think we need saves. I think we can improve. Obviously, there's always room for improvement. I'd love to see us get back up to double figures, something that we regularly got uh, through the uh, 80s and uh, the early 90s. But Ricky Sunak is, uh, is a guy that's been proven in government. You know, he's been proven at the highest level. He's been tested in the heat of a crisis and he is a person that's governed and taken decisions as chancellor as a unionist i mean he ensured that the uh, furlough scheme and all the business support that was available through the pandemic was available throughout the entire united kingdom he made sure that the free ports would be available uh, in scotland to scottish local authorities should they want to bid for it his uh, council tax uh, rebate that he's giving to uh, homeowners in england was was bounced on the scottish government ensuring that it applied to scottish homeowners as well so every single thing that he's done as Chancellor, he has endeavoured to ensure that it applied across the entire United Kingdom. And I think that that sets him up in good stead for what he'd be able to do if he was Prime Minister. And what should his priorities be? What, what you know, what, what is it he's offering that voters in Scotland are going to, going to really like? Well, look, I mean, I think what we've seen is his, his economic plan, uh, the plan to drive down inflation, get the economy in a good place so that we can eventually reduce the tax burden on the individual and on businesses. You know, he's offering people in Scotland the same that he's offering people around the United Kingdom. That sound, uh, pragmatic, sensible, conservative government that I think is in the national interest. He is also somebody that, as I said, has been tested at the top of government. So it puts him in a good place when it comes to taking on Nicola Sturgeon and the Scottish National Party. And he's not somebody that will shirk away from saying that now is not the time for another independence referendum. I think on all of those, uh, it sets him up to be a very good prime minister indeed, a very good person indeed, to lead us forward in Scotland so we can get back up to where we want to be, which is returning in double figures the number of MPs uh, to Westminster. And do you think voters know and recognise him because of his work during the pandemic and everything else? Do you think he starts an advantage in terms of name recognition and also the affection the public have for him when you compare him to the other candidate in this race? Well, I don't know about that. I mean, look, he's known as the furlough guy. He's known as the guy that supported businesses and individuals through our greatest economic crisis since 1945. So, yes, he does have great name recognition for that. But to, to, to pass off Liz Truss as sort of the outsider, the disruptor coming in from, you know, from the back benches to take things up is, you know, is nonsense. You know, she's the longest continual serving cabinet minister in government. She's been in every government since uh, David Cameron in very senior roles. But yes, of course, Ricky has that name recognition from being on television almost every day at the beginning of the pandemic, from saving people's jobs, from being the guy behind Eat Out to Help Out that saved so many hospitality venues across the United Kingdom, including here in Scotland, and saving 11 million uh, jobs across the entire UK. So, of course, he has that advantage. But, you know, we are uh, behind uh, Liz Truss, as the polls suggest just now. So we've got a lot of work to do. We're certainly not complacent. We're working very hard for every vote. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode. We're going football mad tomorrow. Yes, it is coming home. So listen in from 10am. That's all from me today. Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your pods. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 